Hello, folks. This is your host, Tammy Tucky, and you are now listening to the Tierra Talk Show. We bring you rare interviews with the makers of Disney magic. Whether they be singers, actors, Imagineers, animators, they have all made their mark on the Disney name. Be sure to check out the show notes, other episodes, contests, our social media pages from Facebook to Twitter, and more on our official website at www.thetierratalkshow.com. All guest opinions are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent the opinions of the Tierra Talk Show or the host. The Tierra Talk Show is not associated with the Disney Company. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. And from all of us here at the Tierra Talk Show, have a hoop de doo day. I'm excited to welcome this week's Tierra Talk Show guest, author, director, writer, Jeff Curdy to the show. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. I'd love to talk about your beginnings, you know, easing into working for Disney. Like, what was one of your first type of jobs working as possibly a, an author or working as a director? My um, usual go-to line when people ask about my sort of strange career path is, I somehow was able to take my mental illness and make it into a career. Because it really started with going to see Mary Poppins when I was five or six. It was probably the first movie I had ever seen in a big movie theater. And apparently I'm told that I sat absolutely motionless for two hours and 20 minutes. And the first thing I said when it was over was, can we see that again? And from that point on, I was enamored of all things Disney. It was after seeing that, that it was explained to me that Walt Disney was a man and he made that movie and Walt Disney was the man who made Mickey Mouse and it all sort of started to come together like a big puzzle. So all through my youth I was fascinated with and studied everything that I could about Disney and of course this was the olden days too so there were no podcasts or um, YouTube or really researching anything Disney involved real commitment and research. So it was the library, encyclopedias. I watched the Disney TV show religiously. Um, comic books were a big vehicle for me. What was the one book that you got your hands on that was Disney-oriented that you just could not stop reading over and over? There were two, actually. The very first thing I got was a kid's biography of Walt called Walt Disney Magician of the Movies. And I still have my copy of it from childhood. And this actually predated his uh, Walt Disney and American Original by a couple of years. And it was, once again, a, a kid-friendly overview biography of Walt Disney. The one that really is the strong personal cultural impact was in 1972 or 73. I'm old and can't remember now. There was a book that came out by Christopher Finch called The Art of Walt Disney. And it's been reprinted and repurposed many times since then. But at the time it came out, it was epic. It was probably the biggest, most ambitious most expensive coffee table book that had ever been done. And I think I was 10 or 11, 12 years old. And it was the only gift I got for Christmas that year. 
strange thing about it is I still have that. It's a first edition. And when I open it any time and start going through the pages, I'm absolutely blown away at how much of that book I still have memorized. What is in that book just as part of my mental vernacular? It's, it's really, that was a huge thing. It also was one of the first things that gave me both an overview of the studio, of the Walt Disney Productions at the time. And it was also one that gave me a good balanced view of Disney culture in the sense that it was a series of intellectual ideas and ideals that wove their way through several different businesses, so to speak. And then it also gave me a really good perception of an artistic point of view that is a component of everything Disney um, that still is made to this day. So it was really a hugely influential book. What was fascinating for me, too, was many years later, I was doing my first really big book for Disney. It was called Since the World Began. It's a history of Walt Disney World for the 25th anniversary. <clears throat> they assigned it to a book designer, and that designer was named Nay Chang. Nay Chang had been the designer of the original Art of Walt Disney by Christopher Finch. So I just about fell over dead that that guy was going to be designing my first Disney book. That was a huge thing. But as I progressed through childhood, the, the real, the, the other big key event came when I was about 16, almost 17 years old. I worked in a little movie theater. I grew up in Seattle and there was this little movie theater at the North end of town where I lived that had actually, I think been closed for a while, a little neighborhood theater from, just post-war, 1946-1948, called The Crest. And they were reopening The Crest, and they were doing something really odd because nobody was showing movies in 70mm and 6-track stereo in Seattle. This was 1978. And so they were going to open up, and they were going to show a series of movies over the summer of 1978, in their original 70 millimeter six track stereo. The first one was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And they had a fairly ambitious plan to show other movies in this wide gauge, widescreen, multi-channel sound um, format. And it was very ambitious and it was getting noticed all over the country because a lot of, uh, there weren't a lot of those cinephile high-end sort of presentations going on anymore in the late 70s. Um, movies had become sort of shopping mall, multiplex, not particularly great presentations for the most part. So I got a job at this theater. I got a job because in the interview, I sat and talked with the manager of the theater, who turned out to be a Disney nut, still one of my dear friends to this very day, gave me this job because we wound up talking about Pete's Dragon in the job interview and that that was one of the most recent films I had seen and that I liked it because it was ambitious and it was a big musical created for the movies, not adapted from a Broadway show or from something else. I'm working in this theater and one of the big 70 millimeter presentations, they, they, they actually got approached by Buena Vista Distribution by Disney to do a test run of Sleeping Beauty. 
in 70 millimeter Technorama and six track magnetic stereo. It hadn't been exhibited that way since its original release in 1959. So they engaged me and my friend, the manager of the theater, Dan Long, and Dan and I put our heads together. They asked what, because Sleeping Beauty is only, I think, 75 minutes long, they said we could have any short from the Disney library to show with it. And they were kind of baffled because Dan and I both piped up and said, Grand Canyon. Because, of course, it was widescreen cinemascope, four-track magnetic stereo, and the Academy Award-winning short subject that was released with Sleeping Beauty originally in 1959. So, of course, it made perfect sense to us. Baffled a lot of the people that were involved in that decision, but they did it. So we replicated sort of the opening night presentation of Grand Canyon and Sleeping Beauty, and it was huge absolutely a huge, gigantic smash hit beyond their wildest expectations. Now, in advance of that being screened, this was 1970, this was early 79, maybe. They sent up to do press, they sent up Eric Larson. Eric was one of Walt's nine old men, terrific animator, extraordinarily talented guy, and most importantly of all, a mentor, a world-class mentor. I don't think you can talk to any animator of a certain age, a certain generation, a certain experience where they do not mention the enormous influence of Eric Larson. So Eric came to Seattle to be part of promoting this re-release of Sleeping Beauty in 70 millimeter. Along with Eric came a young pup from Buena Vista Distribution, guy who was just sort of coming up through the ranks named Dick Cook. Now, Dick Cook, your listeners probably will remember, was the chairman of the Walt Disney Studio up until a few years ago. So I met Dick when I was 17 years old, and he had just sort of emerged into a larger management role with the distribution company. The third guy that was sent up was a young 25-year-old publicist that had just been hired named Howard Green. And once again, for, for your fan base, they'll probably know Howard Green now as the vice president of publicity for the Disney Animation Studio and very much a sort of a Disney history expert and, and a history buff and a terrific guy. And I was in charge of escorting them around Seattle to their various press meetings and things like that for three days. And we got to be very chummy as these things happen. And Eric invited Dan and I to come down to the studio and visit. And I think that took us about, oh, I don't know, two weeks to follow up on and get from Seattle down to Burbank to visit Eric. And Eric introduced us to Dave Smith at the Walt Disney Archives and to Paula Sigmund Lowry. Uh, once again, Disney personalities that would figure enormously in my Disney career. So... This is sort of the path that things take. And I tell young people that I meet who are very interested in their Disney careers to, number one, never take any of these chance meetings for granted because I'm not a big believer in chance meetings. The second thing I always remind them is opportunity is not a lengthy visitor. So if you're presented with an opportunity, it's best that you follow up on it as quickly as you can and show your commitment to it because otherwise you've missed it. They don't come back. Um, and it's enormously disappointing later on to look back and say, if only. 
So that led me, I was in high school still when all of that happened. When I graduated high school, I knocked around Seattle for a couple of years working in two big national touring houses. We were, uh, it was the, the sort of the tail end of big national live theatrical tours. So there were musicals that toured through one of the theaters I worked in. It was called the Fifth Avenue in Seattle, which is still there and going very strong, very well regarded. Um, the Fifth Avenue was doing tours of things like Annie and Evita, Pirates of Penzance. Um, and so I worked for the general manager of that um, touring house. For him, my responsibility was really doing all kinds of strange little things that nobody else wanted to do, like leading tours of the theater every Wednesday. They did a free tour of the historic theater every Wednesday, and I would go down and meet the groups and take the, um, lead the tours and uh, all sorts of odd jobs like that. So I got to meet a lot of people and meet a lot of people who were in the touring companies that came through. Once again, just by coincidence, I wound up, uh, I consult for Disney Theatrical Group in New York. And several years back, I was working on a project with a guy named Jeff Lee. And we just kept kind of looking at each other and couldn't figure out, couldn't figure out. And finally, we sat and ticked down our resumes and realized that he and I had met in Seattle when I was 19 years old. He was the company manager for the national tour of a chorus line. And now I was working with him. He was a producer for Tom Schumacher at Disney theatrical group. So all of these threads sort of float out in space and come back and tie together, just kind of keeping an eye on all these things, looking at all of these sort of threads that weave together and so on. And I finally left Seattle in 19, January 2nd, 1983, and moved to Los Angeles. And my big goal was to work for Disney. I know that's a phrase you hear a lot from a lot of people. I just want to work for Disney. Well, what's interesting, too, is when you develop a knowledge about a certain subject, and it doesn't have to be Disney, it can be anything. It can be uh, American revolutionary history. It can be automotive design. When you develop a passion for something, the best thing to do is to sort of continue to learn about it. And one of the structures within your thinking that's always helpful is connectivity and context. And so it's not really just enough to know about a list of dates and events and that sort of information. It's much more interesting if you can talk back to people about that subject or relate back to them by providing them ideas and context. And I find that this is a great deal of what I do in the Disney projects that I've done, um, is not just to say, and then, you know, Walt made Bambi in 1942. It's to let people know, gee, did you know that Bambi has the production number directly following Snow White? Because it was planned so much earlier and it just never was able to get made to the satisfaction of Walt Disney before 1942. And I so, like how you relay that to the documentaries that you work on, whether it be The Boys, Waking Sleeping Beauty, my, one of my favorites, The Walt Disney Treasures. You know, I love seeing those those separate portions. It's almost like its own big documentary about certain certain events and certain films and certain characters. It really is fascinating to see uh, the process. That's that's mainly what I tell my guests on the show. I like to learn 
about the creative process into creating a character, creating a song. And I love how these documentaries are a gateway, an open door for us to see that. It, it really is fascinating. And I love how more more and more keep coming out each year. It, it really opens one's eyes to what happens behind the scenes. And that can be done well or it can be done poorly. Because once again, like any storytelling, a documentary has to have a point of view. And as a story, it has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. When Leonard and Malton and I were doing the um, Walt Disney Treasure series, that was sort of our constant drumbeat together is what are we saying? What do we want to tell people? People have asked me, how do you classify what you do as a career? Are you a teacher? Are you a, a director? Are you a writer? Are you a consultant? Are you a producer? And I say, yes, I am those things. Mostly what I do is... Tell people stuff they don't know. And when we were working on Walt Disney Treasures, for instance, there was a great deal of back and forth and discussion in terms of what's the content, who are we going to talk to? And in many cases, how can we bring together disparate pieces of content that exists and make them contiguous in terms of their ideas as we present them to people? And I think that, to tell you the truth, was both the great success of the meeting of the minds that Leonard Moulton and I had in terms of putting these things together and in terms of the audience accepting and understanding what we were trying to show them about the history and legacy of, of Disney. That was an extraordinary. And of course, The, the Boys is, is a very close to my heart documentary because the Shermans are our family. The, the, uh, when I was very first working at the Walt Disney Studio in 1986, once again, I do not believe in coincidence. I was walking in from the Buena Vista Street parking lot and I saw these two men walking out. And I looked at them and I realized that it was Richard and Robert Sherman, two of my childhood heroes. And you can bet that I was not shy and I accosted those two poor souls in the parking lot at the studio, and I talked to them for half an hour. We became very good friends very fast, and we got to work within a couple of years about resurrecting the idea that they had had about doing a book about their time at Disney and about their career as songwriters, and that resulted in the book Walt's Time, um, which came out many years later. In the meantime, I wrote articles and did special events and did things with them in addition to socializing and becoming becoming good friends of theirs. So when the time came that Greg Sherman, Richard's son, and Jeff Sherman, Bob's son, um, were going to do a, a documentary on Sherman Brothers, that's when they bestowed on me the title of Shermanologist. In addition, it was the ability to do things like help to create the connection between uh, Richard and Robert and Disney theatrical productions that gave them uh, genuine involvement in the stage version of Mary Poppins and to continue to sort of bring them up to people. When I met them, they were, except for a lot of fans, they were essentially forgotten men and it was sort of tragic. And I think that we were able to elevate their identity and, and, and move their star a little bit higher, fortunately, over the course of the years. So once again, that had to do with not only knowing the facts and figures and dates and history, but it had to do with 
being able to see the story we could tell and how you could make connections, provide context and elevate the story behind the story and make people as excited about that as they were about the story that was in the, in the, in the forefront. It was the same with, with the Walt Disney Family Museum when that project came about and I was asked to be the creative director and, and the several other roles that I had on the Walt Disney Family Museum and its creation. We would constantly look at it with, and, and once again, that, that also very interesting, my colleague and key collaborator and partner on that uh, content in the, in the uh, narrative and, and the, the sort of whole storyline of the Walt Disney Family Museum was Paula Sigmund Lowry, who I had met at the age of 17 when she was working in the Walt Disney Archives. So I think that's another thing, and you know, your listeners know about how you're you've got your family and you've got your Disney family. And that's one of the things over the years, I've built a very interesting and, and large Disney family that uh, includes people like Paula. In addressing the creative and content challenges of the museum, though, it was the same set of criteria. What's, what do we want people to take away? And once again, are we doing with our medium what we need to do to tell the story the best way? And we would get into these discussions at big roundtables all the time about facts and data and timelines you can find anywhere. You can look up on the internet and you can read Wikipedia articles and get data. That's not the front line story in a museum. What are you doing to enhance the in-person experience and utilize the medium that you have of objects and space and settings and audio and visual media to be able to tell that story that you want to tell, in this case, about the life of Walt Disney. So we concentrated very much on being a museum that was about why. It's very easy to find what he did and when he did it and where it was but harder to put across to people in any other kind of medium is why. What were the influences? What were the stimulations? What made him tick that made him want to do these things? The other thing that's easy to do, and this is what we encountered on the museum quite often, was people get sidetracked by the colorful, glistening, sparkly, musical projects and they veer off the path and start to talk about the projects and not about Walt Disney. So we would very frequently at these big round table content discussions, our phrase was, where's Walt? Everything comes back to fundamental things that I learned by paying attention to and studying Disney. What's your story? What do you want to tell people? Does it have a beginning, a middle and an end? What's interesting about this? And most of all, People kind of want to know why. And that, I think, has been the influence of Disney in my work and why I come back and work for the Disney company so often on so many projects is because I think there's a cross-pollinization in terms of ideas and philosophies that works really well. Uh, before I do the Fab Three questions, another question popped up in my mind. Since you work with the Disney theatrical productions, is there any Disney film 
animated or live action that if you had the choice, would you love to see it on stage? What would you like to select to actually see it in person on stage, either on Broadway or in the Disney theme parks? I believe that there is a wonderful stage musical in Bedknobs and Broomsticks. A few years ago, I put forward a short creative brief on a stage musical version of Pete's Dragon. I think Mulan could be a terrific stage musical. I think Pocahontas could be a glorious stage musical. That was one of the things when Disney entered into the Broadway world. There was a lot of resistance from the people on Broadway about Disneyfying Broadway. You know, my thing about Disneyfication, that's just, that's a lazy sort of terminology for people who don't really know what Disney is about. But the idea that you're dealing with generations of people now who are in theater, who are in the entertainment business because of something like that that they saw that was a a one of a kind impact. For me, it was Mary Poppins. For a, a young generation of theater professionals, they saw Beauty and the Beast in 1994 and it changed their lives. These are the sort of cultural contact points that keep re-energizing the Disney culture, generation after generation after generation. It's it's Mm -hmm. the same as showing my kids the Blu-ray of Pinocchio last night. You reinvigorate these, you reinvigorate these historic stories and deliver them to a whole new generation over and over again. And it builds on the imagination. And it can only take us further and farther as a society with the new projects like Frozen, Princess and the Frog, Tangled. You know, there, there, there are so many new stories coming about because it's a new generation of animators who grew up with the older Disney films. So it's really cool to see it come full circle. It really is. And, and we've come full circle with our interview, speaking of which. Um, and now I have the three fab three questions. And we'll start with the Donald one, which is... As a child, besides Mary Poppins, which you mentioned earlier, what Disney film was one of your favorites to watch in the movie theater? There were so many, especially in the 70s, but Mary Poppins was huge. And to be honest, all of those weird 70s Disney comedies really influenced me. The Strongest Man in the World, The Computer War Tennis Shoes, The Million Dollar Duck, Snowball Express were a vernacular of family comedy that you didn't see anywhere except in Disney movies in the theater. So I know that's really an odd answer, but... No, not at all. It wasn't one movie, but it was a type of film. I used to call it Talking Animals and Flying Cars. And our goofy question, what Disney character do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person? Wow, that's a hard one. And you know what? You ask that question differently from other people, which tend to say, who's your favorite? And my go-to answer is typically Tigger because he's energetic, he's optimistic, and he believes that everything that he does is what he does best. And that's a good place to put your head. Who as a character would I want to spend time with? Oh my gosh, that's such a vast number of characters. I am absolutely stumped. Who wouldn't want to sit around with Captain Jack Sparrow even for half an hour? That would be really kind of just fun, almost in a just a breezy, silly kind of sense. Gosh, no, this question's going to be on my mind for a while. I'll I'll have a really good answer for you one day later. And finally, our Mickey question. If I asked you to name any Disney song at this very moment, 
What immediately comes to mind? My go-to song, my favorite Disney song is Feed the Birds um, for a lot of reasons. Um, and not sentimental ones per se, but just because I think it's such a beautiful song and it always takes me to such a gorgeous piece of storytelling. All of the sort of clutter that's gotten around it of, of sentimentality that it was Walt's favorite song and all of that stuff really didn't, you know, that, that didn't come around to me until I was an adult. I mean, I didn't know any of that stuff. Um, the second one for me, once again, and this may be just memory from watching the movie last night again, is When You Wish Upon a Star, as a beautiful melody, as absolutely eternal lyrics, and as a fundamental idea, is such a Disney song and such a beautiful one. It's so easy to perform it poorly. I was at a memorial service at Chapman University fairly recently for Jack Lindquist. And the vocalist got up and sang, When You Wish Upon a Star. And that lady knew everything that that song was about. It was a performance of that song unlike any I'd ever heard. There was not a dry eye in the house. And it wasn't forced and it wasn't uh, overstated. She just beautifully understood the nuances of that song. It was glorious. And it was at a time too, both for the need of the event, but also for me in my own life in terms of a, a need to sort of re-energize my Disney mojo every now and then. That meaning of that song really spoke to me again and really energized my batteries again for the Disney projects that I was working on. I cannot thank you enough, Jeff, for coming on the show. It was Pleasure to talk to you, and I really do hope we finally get to meet in person at oh, the yeah. D23 Expo, because I did see you last year, but mm -hmm. you were really busy, and I did not want to bother you. <laughs> I think you were working on a panel at the time, so I was like, you know what, another time, and another time we could chat. So I have absolutely no, you know what, even if I look busy, I encourage people to please go ahead and bug me. That's <laughs> talking to and interacting with and being a part of that community is really important to me. Um, because that is the extended family to a large degree. And, and I appreciate your asking me to, to, to talk to you and talk to your listeners. I, um, I do go on, but I hope that there's something worthwhile in there. Bobbing along, singing a song On the bottom of the beautiful bright sea Bobbing along, singing a song on the bottom of the beautiful briny, shimmery, shiny, beautiful briny sea.